Please join me in opening your Bibles to Psalm 19. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that we can sing of your mercy and your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that we can sing of your grace, your for, the forgiveness of our sin and the granting of Jesus' righteousness. Thank you that we can worship you now in your word. Cause us to be humble before you and accomplish your fruitful work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know this well at this point. There is social media reality versus like reality reality. I really don't want someone's false advertisements of themselves. I want to know the real person. And we all need to know the real, living, enduring, powerful, wise God. And He will never provide false advertisements. He does not falsely advertise Himself. So the question we want to answer this morning is, how do we truly get to know Him? How do we truly get to know God? This morning, as we open a short series on knowing God, we want to see four avenues, four avenues to getting to know God. And the first avenue of getting to know God is we learn about God through what He has made. We learn about God through what he has made. And this is why we are in Psalm 19. Take a look there, please, with me. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the Son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This psalm beautifully declares, first of all, God's natural revelation of Himself. And we learn about who God is as we see the things He has made. You look into the sky at night and you see these dotted sky. You see things that are there. And how did they get there, my friends? God has placed those stars in the atmosphere in the universe as you look into the sky during the day and you see the clouds floating by and the birds uh, flying by as, as you look at the trees of the field as you go down an ocean drive and you see the the glorious rolling waves coming up onto the shoreline and the, the jagged or rugged shoreline as you go into the middle of our country and see cornfield after cornfield after cornfield after cornfield and then some more corn. It's, it's all over the place, but they're rolling hills or even flat grounds, but it, the, the beauty of what God has made is incredible. Some people have had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon and, and seeing the, this glorious scene 
All of this comes from the handiwork of God. We learn about who God is by the things he has made. This is one way he has revealed himself to us. Take a look, please, with me at Romans chapter 1. As part of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, he makes it abundantly clear that God has revealed himself and that there is no refusing to understand what God has declared about himself through the things that he has made. In Romans chapter 1, please look with me at verses 19 and 20. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How? Ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. And what is the result of this? So they are without excuse. We, we are without excuse to understand that God is and God has and God continues to. His power is clearly seen. His wisdom is on clear display. The natural world does not run the way that it runs by happenstance, by chance. Our glorious God created order and He created the things we see. We learn about God through what He has made. Secondly, a second avenue to knowing God is we learn about God through what He has done. We learn about God through what He has done. Just the first half of Psalm 9.16 says, The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The Lord is known by the things He does. The judgment He executes, the righteousness He displays, the mercy He administrates. Take a look at, at the book of Exodus, please. Exodus chapter 7. I want to read a number of verses in the book of Exodus, first in chapter 7, then in chapter 8, and then we'll move a little bit further from there. But what we want to see is God revealing himself to his people and to an onlooking world by his own acts. In Exodus chapter 7, let's start reading please in verse 3, where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, the people will know that I am the Lord as I deliver my people and bring forth judgment. Look a little further at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, now he's talking to the people through Moses, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And so 
God is using Moses as a, as a mouthpiece to convey something, and then the acts that come forth are a way of God making himself known. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, now in verse 10. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that I may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Moses, I want to see what you're going to do. I want to see your hand so I might know you better. Verse 22 of the same chapter. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may what? Know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God is making himself known by the things he does. Look at chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. As God performs his will on the earth, and as God performs his work and will for his people, he is teaching us, and he is teaching the onlooking world about who he is. So what God has made, his handiwork, his craftsmanship, his wisdom, and what God has done in redeeming a people in the context of Exodus, redeeming the people of Israel from the land of Egypt where they served as slaves and being freed from that slavery and headed toward a promised land that God had promised many years earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God fulfilling his word. We see his faithfulness. We're learning about him as we see what he has done. A third avenue, vitally important for us, to knowing God is that we learn about God through His work in our lives. We learn about God through His work in our lives. Take a look, please, at the book of Acts, chapter 1. Shortly, we will get to the text that is the basis of our series, and we're just going to touch on it this morning. It's an introduction to us of that text that we will meditate on for coming weeks, which will be a source of nourishment for us, because anytime we are meditating on the things that are true about God, we will be nourished if we are his people. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, take a look at this very well-known passage of scripture. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what does it say? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so God says, when my spirit comes in to dwell in you, from that period of time, you will go out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and further, and your job is to bear witness to me. Now, part of this is giving the gospel story, telling people that they are have been born in sin. 
that their sin will in fact and has in fact condemned them and that the wrath of God abides over their heads until they turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. It is, it is telling that gospel story that, that Jesus, because of God's grace and Jesus' love, was willing to take on human flesh, lived perfectly, fulfilled every deed, every law, every requirement of the law and and the plan of his Father and laid down his life as a sacrifice, a once-for-all, sufficient, perfect sacrifice for our sin. That he was buried, and then the third day he rose triumphant over sin, over death, over hell. This is what Jesus has done. This is part of that, that witness, but that's not it. That is a glorious story to tell. But you shall be my witnesses, Jesus says. Witnesses of Jesus. And guess who Jesus is a witness of? He declares who God is. No one has seen the Father any time. The only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, he what? He shall declare me, is what it says. He shall exegete me. He shall take who I am and make it known. This is what our job is, to let God be known. And God, in His grace, has used people like me and people like you to to an onlooking world to see that God is real, that God is alive, that God is wise, that God is powerful, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is patient. God does this through weaklings like us. This is glorious. How do we get to know God? Well, you look at what He has made. And you look at what He has done. And you look at the people that He has redeemed. And you say, wow, God, you're active in that person. You are alive. Now, this is not the only text that bears witness to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, the Bible says this, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. So think about this. The work that God is doing is on display by the words you say by the mindset that you carry, by the facial expression, by the body language, by your acts. We can display that we testify of who God is and that He is alive and He is real. Or, in other instances, we might display that we don't believe He's alive because we speak like the Gentiles speak. We live like the unbelievers live. We think like the unbelievers think. And thus we are no longer testifying in that moment of God's glorious grace. We are not declaring His liveliness, His truthfulness, His faithfulness. Jesus said this in John chapter 13. You'll remember it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, what is this? Loving one another, right? By this, 
all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Now, we have just one great illustration of this right in the text of Scripture. Take a look at chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. So the context is the, the disciples, Peter and John, are, are being persecuted because they healed a man. Um, and, and God was demonstrating his glory through the apostles. Now they're on trial, and we have verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, Common men. If you stop the sentence right there, it doesn't, it's just not helpful at all. But he goes on. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Think about the, the impact that had come on these men's lives. They're, they're just commoners. And here they are testifying and convincing crowds of people to follow after a person that in some of their minds is dead. There's something unique about these people. They're common, uneducated people, and yet, vast crowds are following after them. I know what the issue is. These men have been with Jesus. That's testifying of God's power, not their own. Testifying of God's wisdom, not their own. As we behold one another, our goal should be to be a proper display of the character of God. Thus, we will be teaching one another and we will be teaching a watching world. Keep this in your mind as you navigate through your day. You are to be displaying before a watching world the truthfulness of our living God. These are vital avenues so far of gaining knowledge of God. What are these vital avenues? We know God. We learn about God by the things He has made. We learn about God through the things that He has done, His acts. We learn about God as we see Him on display in one another's lives. We recognize that we all have been born, made in the image of God, that sin mars that image of God, that redemption restores that image of God, and a walk in the Spirit displays that image of God. This is beautiful. These are all vital avenues toward knowing God. But I submit to you, there is a most important avenue for our getting to know God, and it is by how He reveals Himself in the inspired Word of God, the Bible. Looking at what God has made, in the skies, it's not working still. Just forget it. I can do it without it. We observe the power of God by what He has made. We observe the power of God by what He has done. We observe the power of God and the knowledge of God in His people. Finally, we learn about God as we listen to how He speaks about Himself. How He speaks about Himself. This is glorious. Take a look, please, at Exodus 33. As we come to Exodus 33, I want to give a a short recap of the preceding chapters so that we can get into the context of this passage. In Exodus 12 through 15, we have an accounting of God's deliverance and 
subsequent celebration of that deliverance. It's really great. The Passover, God actually delivering them, getting to the, the Red Sea, them crossing, and then the song of Moses, the song of deliverance. So that's the deliverance and the celebration of that deliverance. In chapter 16, 17, and 18, we observe various ways that God provided. In chapter 16, God provided manna. What is it? That's a good question because that's exactly what the word means. It's some kind of bread from heaven. God provides manna. In chapter 17, God provides water out of a rock and victory over the Amalekites. In chapter 18, God provides for Moses wisdom through his father-in-law. So chapters 12 through 15, you have deliverance and celebration. Chapters 16, 17, and 18, God providing for his people. Then in chapters 19 through 31, God appears on Mount Sinai. He gives the Ten Commandments and describes the holiness laws, and he prescribes the tabernacle, which is a place that God wanted designed so that he could travel and dwell among his people. This is all good news so far, right? You come to chapter 32, and the people begin to panic because Moses is gone. He went up the mountain. There's been thunderings and lightnings and a frightful show. And as he's not coming down, and as he's not coming down, and as he's not coming down, the people are wondering, I think, I think we've been abandoned. I don't think he's coming back. I wonder, has God brought us out into the wilderness to slay us? And so they demand action on the part of Aaron. They will never, ever understand this. But Aaron acquiesces and molds for them a golden calf, an image, an image representative of the God that delivered them from Egypt and they made sacrifices. God declares judgment upon this rebellion. Moses intercedes for the people And you know what he did? He cited two things, mainly. He cited God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he also cited his reputation, God's reputation, to a watching world. Now, God had a plan all along. God tries to help us to understand him better in situations like this. And God grants Moses' request not to annihilate the people and start again. In chapter 33, God declares to the people, to Moses really, that he's not going to go with them. I won't destroy you, but I'm not going with you. Listen to what he says. uh, Exodus 33, beginning in verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Yeah, good thinking. 
Moses had a a unique relationship with God, and it's described in verses 7 through 11. We're just going to look at verse 11, concludes that description of Moses' unique relationship with God. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. The word there is mouth to mouth, meaning intimately. Intimately, that's a word picture. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks. As a man speaks to his friend. Just the kind of God that we see revealed in Scripture should humble us. goes on, it says, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is the unique relationship Moses had with God, this intimate relationship, a friend relationship. In verses 12 through 17, Moses requests God's presence And God affirms his willingness. Look at what it says. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. (laughs) Okay, Moses, I'll go. This is is unique. Uh, We've read it so many times. You've read through this. This is unique. God (laughs) communicating verbally to Moses. God rightly angered by the activities of his people that he has done nothing but deliver and provide for. And they rebel against him and worship a golden calf. God says, that's, that's enough. There's got to be a better people than this that I can do this with. And Moses says, no, no, you promised and people have seen. And God says, all right, you, you got it. And he talks with him. Don't just send us into the land. We need you to come with us. I can't go and lead this, your people, alone. God says, okay, I will go with you. Verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, holy, set apart? I and your people for every other uh, people on the face of the earth or from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And this leads us to another interesting and familiar passage, verses 18 through 23, where Moses requests a view of God's glory. Moses requests, listen carefully, this is setting the context for a series, this is very important. Moses requests a view of God's glory. Now he talks to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I need more, I want more, I want more, I need more. And he's going to get more. But let's look at the request first, but then we're going to get a little glimpse of what the more is in a moment. Verse 18, and Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make 
all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. What is my name? The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this is the request and God's answer. And in the midst of it, we don't don't get to see what Moses saw, right? But I submit to you, we get the best of what Moses received. We don't get to see what Moses saw. We're not going to be standing around saying, look at the glory cloud, let's just look at it. None of that. What we're going to see is the best of what Moses received, having asked the Lord if he could see his glory. Look, please, with me as we come into chapter 34. We're about to touch on the text that will govern our study over the next several weeks. This week, we're just getting a taste of this passage and recognizing how the context of what is happening teaches us about God. Next week... We'll start to study what God says about himself and take a brief survey of how this passage is used regularly throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But here, we want to look at the text. Verse 5 of Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Do you find that to be fascinating? The Lord descended and proclaimed. He's going to proclaim his own name. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and did what? He worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God introduces himself. God introduces himself. Hey, how you doing? My name is Rob. I'm married to Amy. 
We've been married for 22 years. I have five kids. I'm the pastor at Cornerstone Church. I'm a chaplain in the United States Navy. Blah, 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 blah. All the things you say, you'd say if you introduced yourself to someone. Some people love introducing themselves. Other people, like me, I would rather just say, hi, and not have any of the information. I'm just weird that way. But some people have no problem. I'll tell you all, everything about me, lay it all on the line. I live at such and such an address. Here's my birth date, my social security number. God, when he introduces himself, this is what he says. I think we should probably take note. And just so you know, we'll see this next week, this is reiterated and reiterated and reiterated so many times in the Old Testament and then alluded to many times in the New Testament as we learn more about God. God introduces himself and he affirms that he will go with his people despite their rebellion, and he says that he would make himself known in awesome ways. In this scene, we learn about God by what he has said and by what he was going to do and by his generous ways with his people, his generous, merciful, faithful ways with his people. I want to ask you some questions, please. Do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Do you know him as Father, your Father? Do you know him as Lord, your Lord? Do you know him as friend, your friend? Have you become intimate in your communication and communion with God? We have been granted the privilege of coming to God intimately through the incredible redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who when he proclaimed on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, opening access, obvious access, into the holiest of holy places. The holy of holies, the place where God resides. God has opened the door to this communion with him through the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you know God like this to where you can come to him as Father? Do you recognize him in his role as your Lord? And do you know him intimately as a friend? Jesus has given us this privilege. If you don't know him this way, I want to tell you that you can know him this way. You see, where you fail daily, where I fail daily, Jesus never did. He perfectly fulfilled every demand of the law. And he perfectly obeyed the plan of the Father. And living in perfect obedience and perfect righteousness, he laid his life down as a once-for-all, wrath-removing sacrifice for the sin of many. That sacrifice, that 
offering is sufficient to bear the weight and guilt and condemnation for all of your sin. But it doesn't happen automatically. There is a call for everyone. And that call is a call of repentance. All men everywhere are called to repent. Acts 17 tells us this. What are we repenting of? We recognize who we are. Weak, sinner. We recognize the consequence of that sin. First of all, I'm guilty. Secondly, I am condemned before the Father. I have no leg to stand on before God. Repent. Turn. Turn from this. This is not going to get me to heaven. There is nothing I can do about this sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to behold what God has done for me through the Lord Jesus Christ. I turn toward Jesus Christ recognizing that His death, burial, and resurrection are a sufficient payment to deal with all of that sin I'm turning from. And upon turning from my sin and calling out upon the Lord for salvation through Jesus Christ, God removes my sin forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed my transgression from me, God is faithful and just to forgive all, all our uncleanness, cleanse us from every unrighteousness. And God also grants to me what is absolutely necessary, essential for eternal redemption. He grants to me the righteousness of Jesus. This doctrine we call justification. The removal of our sin and the addition of Jesus' righteousness. And the Bible makes it very clear that this justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. When we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, God removes our sin and grants us eternal righteousness, which results in an eternal relationship with God. Do you know God? Has he saved you? If that's true for you, you've already turned from your sin, you've turned to Jesus, you have received from God this eternal life and this eternal righteousness. Remember this, one of the three avenues, we, uh, four avenues we talked about this morning that is a way that God is making himself known is through his work and his people. Your life, your life is a testimony toward God's saving purposes and the way that God works. Let us commit ourselves, brothers and sisters, commit ourselves to displaying to a watching world that God is alive, that God is real, that God is merciful, that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is patient, that God is generous. Let them see the living God's work in your life. You are an epistle, a letter written to a world that I am, I am from Christ. Let's pray together. Father, you know what work needs to be done in each one of our lives. We commit ourselves to you. I pray, Father, for every believer in this room that we would see our need to continue to know you through your word that we would also see our responsibility to display you to a watching world and toward one another. Father, we also want to pray for anyone in this room that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Dear Father, I pray that you would capture their attention, that you would help them to see 
your marvelous grace and mercy, and they would turn to you, receive from you forgiveness and redemption. We commit this to you, trusting you, knowing that you're the only one who can save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.